There is no more famous or poignant image in American history than John F. Kennedy Jr. on his third birthday saluting his father as JFK was about to be laid to rest 50 years ago today. There was another salute to the slain president that day from men in uniform who considered Kennedy their godfather. David Martin has their story. All the armed services took part in the funeral procession, but none felt a greater loyalty to their fallen commander-in-chief than the Army's Green Berets. Just two years before, the young president had endorsed the beret and the special forces who wore it. That's why special forces people have such a strong admiration for President Kennedy. Tom Gaffney was a sergeant in Army Special Forces when JFK visited Fort Bragg, North Carolina in 1961. He took part in the demonstration the president had come to see. Everything from the far-fetched down to the nitty-gritty. And my A-team was uh, given the mission of putting on a mock ambush for him. Gaffney had already been on a secret mission in Laos, training local tribesmen to fight as anti-communist guerrillas. Unconventional warfare, which merited unconventional headgear. We would love to have something to identify us as being different from the rest of the Army. The Army disapproved of the beret as too European-looking, not masculine enough. But after Brigadier General William Yarborough told the President Special Forces wanted them, JFK issued a statement that the Green Beret will be a mark of distinction in the trying times ahead. By the time of his death, Special Forces had doubled in size. When he recognized Special Forces, he recognized that we needed them, and the Army said, whoa, let's go. Then, on November 22, 1963, this is a scene at Andrews Air Force Base. Gaffney was sent on a new mission. And the colonel said, you, 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 and you, and you started picking people out. Did you know what was in the works? And he said, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy has requested special forces people in the honor guard. Gaffney was one of 21 chosen to stand guard over the casket in 30-minute shifts. Green Berets stayed with the casket all the way to the grave and remained on guard after the Kennedy family had left. Then, in an act that symbolized all JFK had done for Special Forces, one of them left his beret right next to the eternal flame. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. My guest for this week's podcast is Francis Rakopi. Uh, he is a former Green Beret and uh, infantry officer, and he now runs a podcast called the Jedberg Podcast, and he also runs a, a company where they do a, a bunch of different things with leadership and security, and, and you know we'll dive into all of that. Uh, Francis, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on here. So uh, whenever I go on other podcasts, uh, it feels a little different as I'm not the host and sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, driving it, you know. Um, it all it, it always is. It's almost in some ways it's a, it's a bit of a relief. 
Yeah, right. I yeah, to, I get to think more in the moment a little bit than uh, you know. Okay, where are we now, and where are we going, and what's going to be right. next? Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's it's weird, so, like because I at least for me, like I'm like my own worst critic, right? So like at times I'll, I'll be doing a podcast and it'll be fine, and in my head I'm like, man, I don't know if this is going to be that good, and then when I edit, I'll listen back and I'm like, oh, this is great. Um, you know, it's just like my inner voice just being negative, you know? Um, that's called, that's called every podcast. Yeah. Every, yeah. every, every single podcast I've done, we've, so we've done, um, we just released uh, for our long form series. We released episode 100 this week. We have nice. 125, um, uh, that we've done, including our short form. And we have about another 20 that are in the queue. So almost 150 and every single one of those podcasts, is the worst podcast I've ever done and the best <laughs> podcast I've ever done. And yeah. at some point between the, the pre, between preparation, everything that goes from like preparation through the, through the interview, through post-production into its release, everyone has lived somewhere at one end of those extremes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so then what, like uh, for your podcast, you know, what kind of guest are you having on? Are you, are you interviewing like business people or military guys? Like, how's that? We have a pretty wide range, actually. So what I'm focused on, so it's called the Jedberg podcast. And the name comes from my lineage as a Green Beret back to the original special operators of World War II and Operation Jedberg, which was an operation that dropped three-man teams behind enemy lines into occupied France starting the night before D-Day. And they conducted sabotage and subversion operations against the German reinforcement. So basically not allowing the Germans to reinforce the beaches in Normandy, which then facilitated the Allied invasion um, onto the beach. To me, that organization was transformative. They were visionaries. They were drivers of change. And they were dedicated to winning no matter the challenge. And their challenge was great. Uh, they were given very little, very little guidance, very little direction outside of go, go win the war because without you, we can't achieve the beachhead that we need in order to be successful in World War II. So my vision in the podcast was to create a platform by which we talk to today's modern day Jedbergs, those leaders, those visionaries, drives, drivers of change, transformative leaders who stop at nothing to achieve their goals. And that has allowed me to talk to military leaders, politicians, business executives, entrepreneurs, founders, Olympic athletes, professional athletes, social activists, authors, you name it, those who are impacting their industry, their world in some way, I want to tell their story. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Um, so the, the Jetbergs, you know, they were a vital part of the, the war effort. Um, and the the lineage of the Green Berets goes back to, like you said, those Jedberg teams and the, the OSS, uh, the predecessor of the CIA. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I think, if, if I can recall correctly, I think some of the founding members of the Green Berets were in the OSS as well. So after the war, um, yeah, so some of some originally were, but then after the war, the Jedberg teams, the American Jedbergs, went on to form the operations directorate of the CIA. And then in 1952, the, a lot of that division was lifted out and they were put into the army and they became the army special forces. And 
and it affect the Green Berets a couple of years later when they don the Green Beret. So that lineage all lives, you know, in, in, in back into the OSS and uh, and is today manifested in the Green Berets that we have operating uh, all over the world. So, did you have a, uh, you know, did your family have a history of military service? Like, what drew you to the army? My grandfather was in the army. He was in the Corps of Engineers. He worked on the Manhattan Project primarily, um, actually, in the development of mustard gas. He was a he was a chemist, uh, and so I always had a you know thought about service, and you know saw saw his his career. You know, he he didn't spend too many years in after the war, but I. It was something that I had always thought about doing, but honestly, I went to school to study journalism. I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be Tom Brokaw. I wanted to be Peter Jennings. I wanted to be Dan Rather. Network anchor news. That was that was like the pinnacle of what I believed success was in the journalism world, and and that was what I wanted to go study. And and then nine eleven happened my junior year. And even then, I was like, well, I'm going to go be a war correspondent, and I'm going to cover these different conflicts that we're in. And at first, it was Afghanistan, and then it, it went into Iraq in 2003. But when I came through the end of 2002 into 2003, I had a decision to make, and that was to go and pursue my journalism career upon graduation, which would have taken me to you know, a small, a small market town, you know, presumably in the, in the middle of nowhere in America, where I would have had to create my, my highlight reel working as a, a beat reporter. And, or I was going to have the opportunity to go into the army. There were these guys with beards and long hair, they were riding horses. And in my mind, they were changing the world and they were saving the world from this you know this organization that had attacked our our way of life and killed so many in our country and i said you know what if i want to be a reporter i can go and do that anytime right now now's my time to go serve i want to go in the army i want to become a green beret and i want to and i want to be one of those guys riding horses i never actually did get to do that but uh but that was <laughs> that was the decision that i made uh, at that point and were you in college uh, on the east coast or yeah, so I, I went to Boston University. So I'm originally okay. from from Boston, from the Boston area, and uh, and then uh, I actually had a decision. I, I was trying to decide. I got into both Syracuse and I got into to BU, and I went up to Syracuse on a uh, on one of those days in like March where it's. 35 degrees and raining and foggy oh, nasty, yeah. and i'm like oh I can't, I can't i can't do it and then the day i went to visit bu which in bu was only about 15 minutes from my house so i was intent on not going there it was one of those boston days that's you know in in april that's like 72 degrees not a cloud in the sky <laughs> and yeah. and then uh, the decision was pretty clear Yeah, you know, I have a a friend from Boston. Um, he doesn't have a crazy Boston accent, but like occasionally, if, if we're talking, it'll come out like if he says "car" or something like that. Um, and you know, it's it's like the uh, it's just it's so interesting. And then there's there's folks who I've heard on like podcasts. Uh, one guy I'm thinking about in particular was a Green Beret who who lost his leg. Uh, but oh, he, Nick Lavery, right? Uh, and he has one of the heaviest box, Boston accents I've ever heard, you know. 
So Nick Lavery, I just had on. Um, the oh, episode nice. actually hasn't hasn't even come out yet. So we went down to Goruck Games uh, a couple weeks ago and did a, a live activation down at Goruck Games. I did sixteen episodes, but uh, the the first night um, it was well started in late afternoon, but it but it went into the into the darkness. So the video is going to be pretty cool. But uh, yeah, Nick came on. You know, he this huge Boston accent, um, but he talks all about you know losing losing his like being the first below, above the knee amputee to return to to full duty on a uh, on a special forces team, and then you know how how he how he brought himself back and, and the legacy that he's leaving now. Did you know him in the army or? So funny story about Nick that that we talk about. I did not technically know him, but there was about three years ago, I was in a bar in Washington, D.C. at an event. And uh, and and I remember talking to a guy who was absolutely massive, (laughs) who had one leg and I never remembered his name. And I vaguely remember the conversation because it was late. But I talked to this guy for a bit and I remember him telling me, you know, I'm, I'm a warrant officer. I'm a Green Beret. I lost my leg and hearing his story and just being like, wow. And then I, you know, I forgot all about it. It's been a couple of years. And then. When I was getting ready to go down to Goruck, they were they gave me all the different presenters and the speakers so that I could build our podcast list and our, build our our interview slate. And Nick just wrote a book called Objective Secure, where he kind of gives his perspective on how you how you overcome adversity, how you set a goal and vision for yourself, and then how do you actually execute against that? And he tells his story. And I was listening to his book as as I was driving down in Jacksonville, I was listening to it on Audible. And about halfway through, I realized that this is the guy who I met (laughs) in the bar like three years ago. That's funny. And when I saw him and uh, right before we did the interview, he comes up, he looks at me, I look at him and he goes, don't I know you? And I started laughing right there because I'm like, dude, I was halfway through your book when I realized that, yes, we met and that he remembered it. And it was it was a pretty funny moment. So that's how we kicked off our conversation on our uh, on our interview. Oh, that's interesting. I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just a, a remarkable story. Um, you know, I think he's done a bunch of podcasts in, in the last couple of years. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um so let's talk about your uh, your journey through the army. Um, you know, when did you sign up? So I went in in October of twenty of uh, two thousand and three, and uh, I was an infantry officer. I went to basic training, officer candidate school. Went to the, the normal routine of the eighteen months of training. So uh, infantry officer basic course, ranger school, airborne school, the courses they send you to learn about. I was going to be a Bradley platoon leader. So they teach you about the Bradley fighting vehicle. Uh, and then from there, I went, I went to my unit and I went into the, I spent a couple of years in the infantry. Uh, I was very fortunate to serve in fourth infantry division, but I had about five months when I got to my unit before we deployed to Iraq. So that whole first five months was really focused on you know, getting to getting our unit, our platoon up to some combat ready capability. And, you know, I had come there, I'd you know, done well in college. I was a division one athlete. I went to all the schools and, you know, you show up and you feel like, man, like I know a lot about, 
you know, leadership and I'm going to lead this platoon to combat. But I'll tell you, like one of the most important lessons that I learned was when I walked in that door day one and nobody looked at me. Nobody even cared who I was because this was a group of people who'd been to combat. They'd been to Iraq. They'd been to Afghanistan. They had worked together for years and they, and they didn't care that I had these accolades or I had these experiences because in their mind, the experiences that I needed, I didn't have. And so I had to very quickly adjust my thought process to become a learner, become a sponge, understand their perspective because what I learned from them and what I was going to directly correlate to my ability to, to take that platoon to combat, serve with them and bring everybody home. So in that, um, in that process of be- becoming an officer, um, and then in particular an infantry officer, I'm assuming you're doing the, you know, the basic infantry task, you know, the rucking and shooting and things like that. Uh, but as far as like the, the officer side of it, are you learning like military history and leadership and things like that? Well, when you go to those different courses, uh, officer candidate school and infantry officer basic course, they are there are uh, portions of those of the curriculum where you do learn you know military history. You have courses on leadership. You have courses on just how the army works. You know, there's like a good good mix of class time versus field time. You know, where you're doing you know where you're rotating leadership. Uh, positions. So you have people, you have time where you're serving as, you know, as the machine gunner or, or as the grenadier or you're carrying the aid bag. And so by doing that, you start to gain a fundamental understanding of all of the different roles that are, that sit in an infantry platoon. And you're learning about you know, military customs and courtesies about the law of land warfare. You're learning about, you know, different rules of engagement. So the curriculum is very deep in all the things that they're preparing you for as as a young second lieutenant to go out there and stand in front of soldiers and lead them in combat. And then after you, was it after you completed this officer school that you went to ranger school? So the path for me was, uh, yes, I went to ranger school right at, right after. Well, you can't you can't go before unless you're prior service. Uh, you wouldn't be able to go before you went to the uh, to the basic course. So um, I went right after that. Yep, yeah, and that was uh, sixty one days. So even pretty much evenly spread throughout throughout Georgia. Uh, you know, which now is Fort Moore, but was Fort Benning. And then you go up into the mountains of in the Dahlonega area for the mountain phase and then go down to Florida for the for the Florida phase. So, um, you know, and Ranger School was an awesome experience. I mean, it, it was definitely is that it's hard. I think it's hard. It's certainly the hardest school I ever went to in my military career. Uh, but when you you really get drilled in small unit tactics and you understand how to how to work with others when when you're tired when you're hungry when you're cold when you when you want nothing more than to to go to sleep and not do what you're doing but you find a way to persevere through and think clearly and find solutions to problems and then see how others respond 
in those environments. You know, I think it's a critical, it's, you know, we call it the army's premier leadership school, premier leadership course. And I truly honestly believe that. And I was, I was fortunate enough to attend and graduate that school. Uh, and it's always been one of the highlights of my career. So you would say, uh, in terms of, you know, just overall difficulty, uh, it was harder. Ranger school is harder than special forces selection. Well, I'd say they're different. Mm, okay. So, um, I would say that they're different, uh, special forces selection in ranger school is a test as well, but, but it's a prolonged test. You know, it's 61 days when I went to special forces selection, it was like 21 days. It was the, the three week. And when you have a couple of days on the front end as well, um, but, but they're testing you in, in different ways. So Ranger School is teaching you small unit tactics. They're, yes, they're testing your ability to work together. Yes, they're testing your ability to persevere when you know, you're cold, you're hungry, you're tired. Um, but they're also teaching you. And you're learning a different. You're learning different skills. Uh, you're learning what it takes to conduct a raid or an ambush, and then the technical skills that go into you know, holding different roles in that platoon and in that squad, and even on a team. In, uh, selection for special forces is uh, is testing your capability. They're testing your capability mentally, physically, emotionally. At the individual level, through a through a combination of you know of physical and mental exams and challenges, they're testing your ability to comprehend different situations and then your perseverance and your overall endurance and land navigation. And then they're putting you in scenario-based training where they're testing your your character. And do you have the character traits that are required to be successful here? They're testing your ability to work alone in a small group with one or two and as a larger group, you know, up to the, up, up to the team size of 12. And so they're always putting you in a different situation to be able to evaluate that, that your integrity, your morality, and they want to see you solve complex challenges that have answers. But sometimes that answer is just put the work in and get it done. And so they're putting you in a lot of different situations, in various states of, fatigue, hunger, and mental capability to be able to test your character and your response. And uh, going through as an officer in, in Ranger School and in Special Forces Selection, it's the same exact uh, course, right? Like for the enlisted guys as well? It is. It is. It's the same course as it should be. As it should be. Okay. Um, so... Uh, you get to your your team, uh, 4th Infantry Division. The team you get to has already been working together. Um, these guys have combat experience. Uh, you know, what was it like uh, for you to, to get there and, and sort of meet these guys and, and mesh with them and then eventually deploy into a, a combat zone? Well, first and foremost, the relationship that I had with my platoon sergeant was the most important thing. You know, he's the senior enlisted on the team. You know, he run, I'm sorry, in the, in the platoon, and he runs the platoon on a daily basis. 
So learning my job, learning our roles was very important. My job on a platoon and my job even on a special forces team wasn't to be the first guy through the door. It wasn't to be the best at first aid or the the strongest or the fastest. You know, certainly those things would would help to understand all that and 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 be in my and be at the top of my game and everything that I had to do. But my job as an officer in the army and, and in, a, in a in a command position or in a leadership position, even today in, in companies, isn't always to be the the executor of every of every task, but it's to be able to bring resources to bear. It's to be able, it was to be able to understand the strategic picture, to understand the battlefield, what's going on, what are the other assets that we can bring into the fight, what's the next move that we're going to make, how are we going to array our forces on the battlefield, what do we have in terms of our capability, whether that capability be vehicles or aviation or ammo or food, you know, whatever that is. I've got to understand that and I've got to be able to allocate that to my to my unit, to my to my team, so that they're most combat effective. And so I had to understand in those early days what was my role. Do I and I and in what are the other other tasks that I need to be proficient in? But when we understood exactly what our roles were, and and even you know, when you build organizations, understanding exactly what our roles are on our teams reduces conflict and it creates efficiency and effectiveness in how we actually conduct our our daily business. Uh, so you guys, uh, you deployed. So uh, the Bradley Fighting Vehicles is a, uh, like a, a reinforced vehicle, essentially, where you guys would... Uh, work alongside infantry or, or even special operations? So the Bradley fighting vehicle is a, is essentially an armored personnel carrier. Um, the different, the, and so if you think about like a, a, a tank, it's like a much smaller version of a tank, but the difference is, you know, our M1, A1, uh, Abrams tanks, outside of the crew, they don't carry any personnel. So the Bradley fighting vehicle has has the capability to carry six infantrymen that go in the back and there's a ramp that drops down and, and it carries them. It's a tracked vehicle. So it's capable of going, you know, virtually anywhere. Um, and it, and it has a 25 millimeter main gun as well as a 240 millimeter machine gun. So, and, a, and, a t- and two tow missiles. So there's a tremendous amount of capability that the vehicle brings in terms of both you know, firepower, but also in terms of its, uh, it, its ability to do a lot of different things. And, and so you can bring massive firepower to bear, but you can also carry people and move them across the battlefield. It's pretty, it's got a decent top speed. And uh, and you you have a, so much more capability than if you were a traditional infantry unit operating on the ground without any vehicular support. Okay. So then, uh, so you guys deploy, uh, where did you guys go in Iraq? So that my first deployment, when I was an infantry platoon leader, I went to the city of the city of Balad, which was, okay. uh, which was outside of, um, it was about 20 miles or so from uh, the Anaconda LSA. 
and we operated out of a place called Fab Palawada, which was a, a small base um, right there, right on the outskirts of the city of Balad. Um, primarily, you know, it was a, 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 a Shia-dominated area, but we were adjacent to a Sunni-dominated area, and, a specific, and particularly an area that had some of the more elite Ba'ath Party members, you know, those of those of the party of Saddam Hussein. Um, so there was a tremendous amount of ethnic divide that existed in the area that we were. Okay. And uh, what was the length of the deployment? The first one was a year. Okay. So it was, uh, you know, you take it one day at a time. <laughs> Yeah, so typically um, infantry deployments are longer than uh, like you know special operations deployments, right? Yes, absolutely. So I, in over the course of my multiple deployments, my my infantry deployment was by far the the longest to a combat zone, um, and so it was a year there. And then my deployments in the uh, in special forces were you know somewhere around six to six to eight months, kind of depending. So yeah, so it was it, it was it, and then at that point in time, you know, that was the rotation that our forces were taking, both you know in Afghanistan and and in Iraq. Um, which is a long time, but you know, it's also in many ways, it's a long time and in many ways it's a short time because we're talking about solving complex challenges. And when we rotated our forces at the frequency that we did, even though again, the duration of a year is a long time, but when you look at it over a 12 to 15 year period, you know, we got into a situation where you end up kind of fighting the same war 12 to 15 times because we're fighting it in one year increments. And that's, uh, you know, strategically, I think that's something that, you know, will be evaluated by our senior leaders um, when we look at, you know, at conflict in the future. Uh, so what year was this? Was this 2005? 2005 to 2006 was the year that I was there. Okay. And, um, and so at this time, were you primarily dealing with sort of Sunni uh, terror, Sunni sort of back terror groups or, you know, what was the enemy situation? Yeah, we dealt with both. So we dealt with, you know, Shia backed groups and Sunni backed groups. And so that area where I was, you know, they were they also spent a lot of time fighting each other. Um, <laughs> so that was a period of time in which, you know, that 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 ethnic confrontation was really ramping up. Um and uh, and we were definitely you know, kind of somewhat in the middle of it in that area. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions of the war in Iraq that people have is that um, they don't really understand that there was a civil war happening, um, you know, between different Islamic groups. Uh, with American forces and, and sort of, you know, British forces somewhat in the middle. Um, so can you talk about, uh, you know, what that was like, uh, you know, dealing with uh, different groups and then also maybe, you know, what it was like watching them sort of fight each other? It's, uh, it's heartbreaking to see. Um, you know, I think that when we look at, the complexity of the situation that we were in 
during the Iraq war and then to an extent, even Afghanistan, yeah, certainly Afghanistan, um, you were fighting a three-way fight. Um, and, and you had, you know, our battle against the, you know, the, the Sunni hardliners who were the staunch allies of Saddam and the Saddam regime. Um, and, the Iraqi government, you had, you know, Sunni-backed terrorist factions, um, uh, you know, of you know, Al Al Qaeda-like and Al Qaeda and Al Qaeda-like, you know, organizations. You had Iranian-backed Shia groups, um, like the Mahdi Army and and some of the other, uh, and you know, Muqtada al Sadr, um, who were you know, out there attacking us and attacking the Sunnis. Um, and then you had us. Uh, and we were, you know, being attacked by both sides and having to fight a two, in many, in many ways, a two-front a two war against those organizations. And then they were fighting each other. Um, and so you had a very complex situation where the people who got caught in the middle was the populace. And, you know, look, by and large, you know, people of any demographic, people of any country, people of any anywhere in the world, they just they want a couple of things. They want shelter, they want food, and they want security and peace for their families. And you know, Iraq's no different. You know, the common person in Iraq doesn't didn't want conflict. You know, they didn't want us there. They didn't want these other extremist groups there. They just wanted to live their life. And you know, this war brought a lot of people in and, and affected a lot of people because of the just of the different sides that existed and the different reasons that they were fueled to take action. You know, created a very complex dynamic um, that that was not something that was going to get solved in short order. And I, and, you know, we could argue if it if it has been solved even to this day, I'd have probably argued not. Yeah, it's a it's a conflict that uh, existed for a long time uh, within uh, the Islamic faith. Uh, right? There's a you know disagreements about uh, you know what is the true way to to worship right between Sunni and Shia, and and I guess that's been taking place for you know hundreds of years or even thousands of years. Um, but but then. In Iraq specifically, the uh, Iraq has a larger Shia population, but uh, Saddam and and his sort of uh, group were, are Sunnis, and and they dominated the country for years, and and they mistreated the the Shias, uh, and then there was a war with uh, Iraq and Iran um, that lasted, I, I think, almost ten years in the eighties. Um, so there was a lot of. Uh, I guess resentment and anger from the Shias directed towards the Sunnis, um, and then when Saddam was removed from power, uh, I, I, that created a vacuum. And um, you know, like you said, Iran was uh, training and, and equipping and, and arming uh, these Shia groups, and then you had the you know the Al Qaeda's uh, type them and, and groups like them. Uh, coming in from Syria, and the other guys were coming in from Iran, and uh, it, it kind of created a, a, a big mess there. Um, 
So then what was your like what was your primary goal uh you know when you were deployed there uh in the infantry to come home right and take and take my my platoon home um that that was my goal that was that was all that matters um you know we had a job to do and our job you know was to you know, prosecute the enemy uh as directed by our by our leadership but you know, first and foremost job is to, is to bring everybody home. Okay. And, uh, did you, did you guys, did you lose anyone? Were, were guys getting hurt? Like, what was that like? Uh, I was very fortunate as, uh, as a platoon leader, um, to not have lost anybody, not have had anybody under, under my direct command, uh, die. Um, now, uh, I was, our company lost an, a, a number of folks, a number of very, very good, very good soldiers and leaders, um, both in our company and our battalion and people that I very much respected and looked up to. Um, I've had, I did have a, a couple of, a couple of my guys were, were shot though and injured in a, in a number of other ways. Um, but, uh, you know, but we, we were close, you know, as, as a company, uh, and as a battalion, cause we operated, you know, this, this pretty small base. So, um, just because, you know, I didn't lose anybody who was you know assigned to me does not mean that, uh, that we didn't lose, lose folks that affected, affected us and were very close to us and were instrumental in, in the development of our, of our units. And uh, I know at, at a point, uh, you know, the IEDs were a big problem. Uh, were you experiencing that when you were there? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, IEDs became the primary in, engagement tool of during the insurgency. Um, that was the, you know, certainly there were there were a lot of you know of gunfights, but you know the gunfights were not as effective for the for the insurgent forces as the ieds were because the ieds were you know e easy to in place they had easy access to the the equipment to make them um they're remotely de uh, um, detonated and they and they provided mass casualty and so uh, and the survivability was lower on the victim side and it was higher on the aggressor side uh versus getting into a some sort of direct you know firefight confrontation where you know our our ability to bring in aviation and have you know more advanced weaponry and targeted and targeting capabilities you know, um gave us a leg up you know we didn't have that with with ieds uh so were you guys um Okay, so actually on the on the ID front, uh, would a a Bradley survive? Uh, you know, driving directly over an ID and and it goes off, or like what was that like? Uh, well, I mean, there's different ways that they're constructed. So they're constructed either with a pressure plate IED that which requires you, uh, something to make contact on it, and, and you know it's detonated when there's something is depressed, uh, or there's a or there's a remote detonation, whether that be through a 
cell phone or some sort of remote control, um, or it or be wired. Uh, so there's a variety of ways in which you know you would you would see those things constructed. And uh, so I know at a point uh, there were uh, EFPs, uh, and they were you know, th- coming from Iran, essentially. Um, were you dealing with those at that time in, in that part of Iraq or no? Uh, yeah, we saw EFPs, um, you know, which is essentially an, a, a explosive formed projectile, uh, which means they would take some sort of, you know, copper or metal or something and apply it in such a way that when the explosive went off, it created a, it created a, a projectile that was, you know, able to detonate or able to penetrate armor uh, or create a, a higher degree of casualty uh, and damage to armored vehicles. And so, yeah, we saw, we saw a bit of those. Okay. Um, and then I know uh, from talking to different guys, uh, uh, particularly on the special ops side, there were many instances where, you know, teams would get in, into a bad situation and guys were getting wounded uh, and they would uh, sort of call in a, a Bradley QRF. Um, you know, the Bradleys would come in and, and be able to get a team of SEALs out or, or Green Berets or Rangers. Uh, what, did you have any experience working with uh, any special ops when you were in the infantry? Yeah, I did. Um, we had a we had an SF team that operated around us, and I think you know that was one of the certainly, you know, I had come into the army with the I, um, desire to go into the special into special operations at some point, and um, during that time, it was a great opportunity for me to see you know how how the teams operated. We didn't do a whole lot with them. Um, I think we provided you know some quick reaction force capability for them every once in a while, but uh, but we definitely saw you know um, them operating and uh, you know continue to draw me in to want to make that that run it go into selection when the time came. And how many how many people were under your direct command? Uh, when I was in the infantry, I had 41. So you have about you have 41 in the infantry uh, platoon. And then as a detachment commander in SF, uh, I had 12. So a 12 man team. Okay. Um, so then, you know, uh, in Iraq, in the infantry, uh, you know, at that base, was it just you and those 40 guys or were there other uh, other people there as well? No, we had uh, there. We had our whole battalion. So there was, uh, I mean, there was a couple hundred people on our base there. Okay. Yeah. No, I okay. Didn't, uh, I mean, yeah, we'd go out and do some things, you know, like overnight, you know, as we tried to, you know, push further into the, uh, into the, uh, you know, in, 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 into the, the various neighborhoods. Um, but uh, but no, there were a good amount of people on there. So in, in situations where you're sort of pushing, uh, uh, presumably going into, you know, enemy controlled areas, are you going after specific people or are you just trying to establish 
uh, presence in, in, you know, said area? Um, so a little bit of both, you know, during that time of, of our campaign in Iraq, you had to do, you, you had to go after targeted operations for identified terrorists and those who, you know, were, we knew or you know, were aware of who were operating against us. Um, but at the same time, we had to build rapport with the local populace in order to understand at a more granular level, what was going on in the community, why it was going on, you know, what were the drivers of of people to the insurgency? Why would why were they not interested necessarily in supporting us? And and by in order to do that, you have to under, like live and understand the local populace. And we built these big bases all around the country, and we prime and to an extent we stayed in those bases. And we'd go out for a couple of hours here and there, drive around, talk to some people, and then and then retreat back. Where we certainly began to see some turning of the tide, and I know you know we did this a lot more in Afghanistan than we did in Iraq. We needed to live amongst the people. We needed to understand what they were going through. We needed to be a part, try to be a part of the community as best we could. But you only do that from being out there. So you know, being out there and having a presence helps understand a little bit more about what's going on, but it also exposes, exposed us to a tremendous amount of risk. Right. Um, and then, uh, in terms of, you know, that, that risk, um, were you running into, like, were you guys getting ambushed, uh, you know, a complex ambush? Like what was some of that like? So that uh, did happen, um, you know, certainly uh, a number of times, um, you know, we, we experienced you know, be, being ambushed and being attacked, um, you know, primarily due to exposure risk, uh, you know, and there were certain areas that were you know, somewhat denied areas, areas that, you know, the, um, the Bathists or the insurgents had a stronghold in and, uh, you know, and we knew if we went in that area, you know, the likelihood of us, you know, being attacked because they didn't want us in that area was pretty high. Uh, and so, you know, we had a, a number of, um, number of those types of, of situations where, you know, we had, you know, three, you know, three, three way ambushes, um, you know, where, where good guys were, you know, guys under my command were, were wounded. And, uh, but, but overall, yeah, it was, a you know, I mean, just kind of got a, those, that's what you train for, you know, that you train, train for those situations and, you know, prepare yourself, prepare your, prepare your, your, your teams and your leaders for how they're going to respond. And that comes down to preparation. That comes down to training, that comes down to understanding, you know, the, the environment that you're in. And they talked about having the resources and understand what's out there to be able to bring in to help you win the fight. But, you know, overall, um, it comes down to, to, to how well versed and how well trained are you to re respond to these situations. And at this time, uh, were you guys, was this the point that, um, cause I know there was a point where the medic was the person who could, you know, respond to gunshot wounds or something like that. But then eventually, 
tourniquet use became widespread and everyone understood how to apply a tourniquet. And were you guys at that level, at that stage, rather, where everyone carried a tourniquet and, and everyone was proficient in that? Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over two-thirds of the globe's corn reserves and over half of its rice and over half of its wheat. But when asked about it, China lies. One China expert says that they, of course, will never admit to something like that. Well, what does China know that we don't? When it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. You see, China is the world's number one importer of food. They rely on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. So they can't afford to mess up or there will be riots, civil panic, or even worse, over a billion people won't have food to eat. What does this mean for Americans like you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why it's a smart idea to stock up on a kit of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food kits. It's hand-picked in the USA. The kits are compact and they stack easily. They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. And their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriots Survival Food by typing in the code RECON at checkout. Just go to 4Patriots.com and use RECON to get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriots Survival Food. That's 4Patriots.com. Use the code RECON. Well, so tactical combat casualty care is you know, replaced, you know, essentially basic first aid amongst our military a, a long time ago. And that's our ability to do a couple of things, you know, understand, you know, breathe. You know, we want to make sure someone's breathing. We want to make sure that they have an airway. You know, we want to make sure that we address any sort of massive you know, hemorrhage. We want to make sure that we understand if, if you know, this, you know, essentially massive bleeding airway, right? Do they have respiratory function? Do they have circulation? You know, these are the things that we're looking at um, in our process to address that and identify, you know, where are they wounded? How are they wounded? Um, you know, tourniquets become an effective tool because they're very simple to put on and yet, and they're also very effective, but they can also be done if you're coherent and capable, you could put your own tourniquet on. Um, and so we have credited the use of tourniquets and the fielding of tourniquets down to the individual level. And some people, you know, we carry multiple ones uh, to saving a lot of lives in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. I've, I've interviewed, um, Guys who were, you know, 18 Deltas, Green Beret medics or um, Ranger medics or uh, Navy corpsmen. Uh, and, you know, we've sort of gone down the rabbit hole and, and you know, talked about how many lives were saved uh, with, you know, simply applying tourniquets and everyone having one. Uh, and then we, we've even gotten to discussions about, um, you know, how many lives could be saved stateside uh, if... You know, for example, if, uh, you know, throughout a four-year high school uh, period, you know, kids are taught how to apply tourniquets, right? And and people carry them in their cars or something like that. Um, And the, 
the example of the the military using them and and how many lives were saved uh i, th- I think is a a great uh, uh case for you know perhaps applying that nationally to schools you know well we're in a difficult spot right now with the um with the mass shooting you know epidemic i would say that you know is is plaguing our country right now um you know whatever the driving factors are uh you know whether it be mental health whether it be access to weapons you know you can kind of pick you know what your perspective is on why we have these problems right now but the reality is is that you know tourniquets do save lives and you know and that as we've unfortunately had to think about in our own worlds, what happens if this were to happen in my own child's school? Um, that is something that we've actually discussed here in my family is, you know, doing, doing, do we outfit our, our kids with, uh, with tourniquets in their bags? Um, because that could be the difference between life and death for, for them or one of their friends, you know, it's a sad conversation to have and it's, yeah, it's terrible that that I actually have to have this conversation, have this thought process. Um, but that's where, unfortunately, we are. But I know from you know my experience that it's probably something that needs to happen. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so you, you wrap up this year long deployment, um, and then are are you at this point, you know, figuring out how to get a slot? Uh, in a special forces selection or like what's next for you? Yeah. So from the, from the time in the infantry, when I got back from my uh, year in Iraq, my process had opened up to apply to go to special forces selection. So I completed the paperwork, sent in my written application and was fortunately selected to go to, to attend the three week selection course at Fort Bragg. Okay, so then, uh, so you you go off and do this. Um, were you, uh, you know, were you married at this time, or were you like single? What was that like? No, I was. We uh, so um, you know, my wife and I, who's still my still my wife, we went to college together, okay. uh, and um, you know, I'd met there our freshman year. We're together, you know, by and large, the majority of our time in school, and then. Uh, got married shortly while I was in the infantry before I deployed uh, to Iraq the first time. Um, and so she was uh, you know, less than less than thrilled when I got home from <laughs> from being gone a year and said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to selection for special forces <laughs> and uh, and, you know, potentially be gone, be gone again. And the conversation that you know we had was about, you know, the fact that I would probably be gone more frequently, but for less duration. Um, which we thought, you know, from the family perspective would be a bit easier to manage than, you know, multiple, you know, longer, you know, one year plus deployments. Okay. So then, uh, you know, while you're in the, uh, in the selection process uh, in North Carolina, um, is she then, is she staying uh, where you were based out of or does she move? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so I was I was very fortunate uh, in that I served in Fourth Infantry Division at Fort Carson, Colorado, and so we lived right outside of Denver, and and you know, I think that it's the it's the Army's little known secret, Fort Carson. Um, you know, beautiful beautiful place, 
being out there in Colorado, absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be, to know that I was going back to 10 Special Forces Group. Ah, uh, okay. In Colorado. Yeah, yeah. So, nice. so she stayed there the whole time that I was gone. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's very convenient. Yeah, I had a, um, yeah. a, a buddy of mine uh, retired at a 10th group uh, a couple of years ago. So I went to his retirement ceremony. It was in uh, Colorado Springs. Um, it was my first time in Colorado, and it's just beautiful being there. Uh, like, you know, every time I stepped out in the morning, you just see the Rockies um, in the background. It's really incredible. Uh, it's an amazing spot. I mean, I was there for the better part of 12, 12 years and absolutely loved it. Uh, so then, uh, so you, you go to your selection, uh, you, you pass. Uh, do you have an option of, of what group you want to go to or do they kind of just send you where you're needed? Like, how does that work? No, they say, they, they uh, assign you. I mean, you give, you give your choices uh, and they assign you and then, you know, they try to give you your first choice. And if you get it cool, if you don't, then you can you know try to switch with somebody, you know, who may not have gotten their first choice. And then, you know, you can kind of try to get to where you want to be. Um, but, you know, my goal was to go back to Fort Carson. That was where I wanted to go. I wanted to be in 10th group and I wanted to be, be back there in Colorado. And, uh, were you like did you stay in the same house or did you have to move houses like what was that like no we stayed that was that was the great part uh, that nice. was one of the driving reasons that why we wanted to do that because we knew you know we we owned our house there we owned it for a couple of years and you know it was like the height of the financial crisis um during the 2007 2008 time frame and so you know our goal to to be able to keep our house stay in our house not have to move you know that was a great opportunity for us and i think you know throughout the bulk of my career you know being at fort carson pretty much my entire time that was a big plus for us and that was great for our family you know it was great for my wife to be able to build her career um where she, you know we weren't moving every couple of years and I have friends who you know i went to who I uh, who I was with in my first you know couple of years, um, who moved every two years or you know moved moved a lot during during their their time in there, uh, and we're always kind of seemingly you know starting over to some extent. Um, whereas we we were in the same place, and, and that was awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. Okay, so um, so you go through the three week selection, uh, you make it through. And then is the Q course next after that? So after selection, you go, um, you know, as an officer, there's some courses that you have to go to uh, <clears throat> at that level. Um, it's called the maneuver captain's career course. So mm. you go to that and then, and then come back <laughs> over to Bragg um, and go to the, uh, the Q course. And the Q course is you know, a year and a half long. Uh, a year to a year and a half long, depending on what your specialty is. So if you're a medic, it's going to be longer because you have to go through all the medical training. Um, you know, if it's if you're anything else, it's about a year, assuming you go straight through. And so as a detachment commander or an upcoming detachment commander, um, you know, I went to that my specialty was, you know, in the in the leadership and the planning piece. Um, so you go there, you go through the small unit tactics portion, you go to SEER school, you go to language training. So I had six months of Russian, 
uh, where I where you know, I was able to become you know fairly proficient in the Russian language as best as I could in you know six months. But that's all you're doing every day. You know, four or five days a week, you're studying Russian, and um, that's a great opportunity to you know kind of immerse yourself in a different language. Uh, I never spoke Russian uh, after I learned it because uh, I ended up going to Arabic-speaking countries um, the rest of my career. But that was a that was a great opportunity to be able to uh, to to study and understand understand that, uh, and then after your culmination exercise, you know, in what's called Robin Sage, which you know a lot of people have heard of, where you're where you're actually you know, conducting an unconventional warfare, you know, your mission, right, you know, in, in the training environment, then uh, then you graduate and you get out to your unit. Uh, so the the course uh, that you attend before you start the Q course uh, is that just like a leadership uh, course or what's that like? Well, you have to learn how to be. The army is very good about teaching you uh, your skill set that's required at every level. So every time you get promoted, every time you seemingly go into a new job, you are sent to a school and that school is going to teach you a lot about what you need to know when you operate now at that new rank. And that's what, that's what that course is designed to do is teach you how to be a captain, teach you how to be a company commander. So every officer, you know, who, who passes selection, they, they take that, that sort of route. Well, every, every officer who is, who's promoted a captain, you know, same for major, there's a course called, you know, ILE, uh, you know, you, you've, and, and all the way up through command and staff as a senior officer, you're always going to need to be required to go to these professional military education courses because that's how they're developing you as a leader. Okay. Okay. So then, um, I know it's typical for a you know an A team, a twelve man special forces team that you have your your weapons guy, you have your uh, your engineer, uh, your communications guy, your medic, um, and then you have your your officer. But I know the the guys sort of cross train in the different specialties. Um, do the officers uh, take part in that cross training, or do you just sort of focus on on your task and you know commanding and leading? No, you will get you will cross train because you because you're such a small a small team and there's so few people and because you're a combat multiplier right meaning that you're going to go and train other foreign forces to to do this job you need to be even as the officer you need to be proficient in these tasks now are you going to be the best shooter and the best medic or the best engineer no you're not going to be any of those things but you have to have a baseline common understanding and you have to be proficient in that you can interoperate interoperate with the rest of the team you know they've got to be able to trust you you got to be able to trust them that's going to come from cross training that's going to come from being you know understanding you know how, how to shoot how to move how to communicate how to use your radio so all of those foundational things you've got to be able to do as well. Okay. Um, so then, uh, you know, the, the different special forces groups, uh, you know, they're assigned to different geographical areas around the world. Uh, but obviously, you know, with the wars going on in the Middle East, uh, everyone's rotating to Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, 
did you got are you able to talk about like what the f- area of focus was for tenth group? You know, outside of the war zones. Sure. Yeah. Tenth tenth group's focus has historically been on Europe. Um, that's why you see a forward deployed battalion that it lit that lives and operates out of Germany. Um, but tenth group and all the groups because of the because of the the strain on special operations and the op- high operational tempo that the war has brought, you saw 10th Group spend a lot of time in Iraq uh, and do a number of deployments to Iraq. Um, and same for 5th Group, although 5th Group's, you know, that was, was regionally aligned to the Middle East. Um, and then you saw, but you saw other groups like third group who spent primarily all their time in Afghanistan, you know, but 10th group also did a little bit of time in Afghanistan, especially first battalion, the forward deployed one. So, uh, so there is a regional focus, but groups will go into different environments in these, in conflicts like Iraq and Afghanistan, just to give the other, the other groups a break from the amount of back to back deployments that they had to do, you know, now prior to, the global war on terror and now you know we've gotten much more back to the baseline regional focuses and i think you know we'll continue to see success and continue to see that focus um as our groups become you know re-indoctrinated into their into their uh operating environment under the different regional focuses so was your first deployment uh in special forces back to iraq or did you go to afghanistan it was, it was, it was back to, uh, it was back to Iraq. I actually never deployed to Afghanistan. So oh, I, spent, okay. uh, I spent primarily, you know, all my time, uh, there. And then when 10th group came out of Iraq in, um, 2013, we made a, or 2012, we made a shift, uh, into Africa. And then that mm. allowed me, gave me a great opportunity to spend a couple of years working, working in and around Africa. Okay, yeah, my um, uh, my buddy who retired a couple of years ago out of tenth group, uh, he was doing a bunch of work in Africa, like on the tail end of his career. Um, but he was in the tenth uh, group SIF, um, uh, so that, that's pretty interesting. So then, um, okay, so you go back to Iraq, and then uh, you know, is it is it a major difference? Uh, Deploying, you know, as a Green Beret captain, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, deploying in the infantry, and and can you, if there are, can you talk about some of those differences? There's a big, there's a big difference uh, between special operations and the regular army. Uh, one of those biggest differences is. <laughs> Let me let me let me put it this way. The, the biggest difference is the focus on the basics. Um, everybody thinks that it's very important in special operations to have cool gear and cool um, uh, equipment, and you know, wear your you don't have to wear a uniform, and your you know boots are not bloused, and you know you wear a t-shirt to the range. And you grow a beard and you wear your sunglasses on your head and put your hands in your pockets. But the reality is, is that 
where special operations sets themselves apart is their ability to understand the basics and the fundamentals better than everybody else. And so what you see is a, a strict adherence to a standard, an uncompromising and unwavering standard for success, a level of accountability amongst each other. And what I say, what I mean by that is team members holding other team members accountable for their performance. You see that at a much greater level than you see in other organizations and, uh, and in other units. And the fact that there's a there's a, a, a almost a zero tolerance for failure or deviation from the standard. And when you do when you don't hit the standard, you're going to train until that standard becomes the routine, and you can't fail, you can't get it wrong. That's what that's the biggest difference between them. It's not about you know, oh, I, I had my own room and a TV in my own bathroom. Yeah, that was great. But at the end of the day, we have a job to do. And that job is, is to train foreign forces and to make them proficient in their roles. And that takes an extreme dedication and an extreme commitment and competency in our own roles to be able to make others good at what they do. Okay, and um, you know what part of Iraq were you guys deployed to? Uh, so I went to two two more times there, um, back to Iraq, and went to the city of Basra, so all the way down south. Okay, and were you, um, you know, working like alongside the British or? No, they had already left. Actually, okay. Uh, I, really think they were, I think when I got there, they were in the kind of the the final. Uh, final pieces of their retrograde okay um so then uh, you know I've, I've talked to a ton of guys who were special forces guys and you know they had a bunch of deployments to iraq um and a lot of that for them was uh, you know working with uh, the iraqi counterterrorism force um you know these different sort of Iraqi specialized Iraqi units, uh, and uh, and then in particular, uh, some of them were, were um, you know going into Sadr City, uh, you know fighting these Shia backed groups. Uh, were you doing some of that down in Basra? So our our focus um, in uh, in Basra was we were partnered and embedded with the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, so the okay. Sixth Region, Regional Commando Battalion, and so our goal was to conduct you know, counterterrorism operations in the southern region of Iraq um, by, with, and through our Iraqi counterparts. So you know, we we trained them, we equipped them, we worked with them, we helped them mission plan, and then we would go out. Uh, with them as they would develop their their targets uh, and go out to to arrest uh, you know those those different terrorist organizations and terrorist actors that were operating throughout the south uh, that was what our focus was and uh you know uh, what was it like working with those guys um, uh, f- from from what I hear uh, you know about the these specialized Iraqi units uh, from Americans, I, I heard that these guys are you know, very proficient uh, and, and good at what they do. 
they were good. Um, you know, I mean, they looked just like us in terms of the equipment that they had. I mean, their stuff was a bit, you know, older generations and versions of what we had. Uh, but you know, we put our special operations forces and our Green Berets across the country, put a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money into this into the Iraqi special operations. Um, we trained them to a very high level, and they were the premier counterterrorism force in the country. Uh, and and we put a lot of effort into making sure that they were proficient and making sure they were very good at their job and that they operated with some level of independence, which is you know very difficult to do in 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 the political environment and the and the um the the cultural demographics and divide that existed during during that time in Iraq. Well, they tried to keep them as neutral as possible. Yeah, that that's a a great point to bring up. Um, you know the the dynamic of Iraq. Uh, you know everything was divided, you know along sectarian lines. Um, you know we've talked about before the difference between Sunni and Shia and and the Kurds. Um, so w- were these groups of uh, you know Iraqi special operations were they Sunnis and Shias or were they just Sunnis or just Shias? Like what was that like? Down where we were was primarily Shia. Okay. And, um, and what, was had, that like... That's a Shia-dominated area down there along the Iranian border. Okay, I see. Hello? hello. Yep, I'm here. Oh, yeah, okay. You're, you're kind of uh, in the matrix there for a second. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, okay, so then... Uh, in terms of the, the kind of operations, uh, were you guys, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, Iranians directly? Like, were you aware of like the the Iranian special forces being there? Um, what was that like? Well, I don't think that there's any secret that Iran had a significant presence throughout Iraq. Um, you know, certainly even more so today. Huh? But and that there were a tremendous number of Iranian-backed organizations that were operating throughout the, throughout the country. Um, where we were in Basra, you know, certainly heavily influenced by Iran. One of the biggest challenges that we had was actually under, trying to understand you know, who was an Iranian-backed terrorist organization and an Iranian-backed insurgent versus who was just living their life. And what we have to remember is that when the Western world, the British you know, primarily, and I'll say, you know, I won't say occupied, but I'll say when when they exerted control over the Middle East, many of the reg- many of the countries of the Middle East borders were drawn on a map by Western cultures. And those don't necessarily correlate to where people live and where they identify with on the ground. And so what we see as a border being you know primarily like the Tigris River, okay, uh, between Iraq and Iran, they simply see as a river that separates the two halves of their families. And where so many challenges existed, when you start talking about what was going on around the border region, is identifying who's coming across illegally. And maybe they're moving weapons, maybe they're, you know, conducting illicit activity. And who's going to see their brother or their father? Because their tribe 
centuries ago had create had lived on both sides of the river. But today that's an international border. And in many ways for, for a long time during the global war on terror was a demarcation line of a war zone. And, the, and, the, and as I mentioned earlier that, you know, people just want safety and they just want to protect their families and they just want food and water and a roof over their head. Well, if that's what you're going back and forth to do, are you a terrorist? Are you illegally transiting an international border? And these are the difficult questions that existed on a daily basis when you operate there. Uh, so you mentioned earlier, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, when you were in the infantry, you know, getting there to your unit and, uh, and sort of that process of, uh, you know, building rapport with your, with your guys, right? Um, what was that like, uh, you know, doing that process, but in special forces? Well, just like where you have to build a relationship with general populace, when you're embedded with, with a partner force, you know, we call it in training, getting into the G base, the guerrilla base, you know, gaining the trust and respect of the leader and those that you are partnered with is one of the most important aspects of being a green beret and being a special operator. We need to be able to have a strong, positive relationship with our partner force because we're training them and equipping them to do things so that we don't have to do them ourselves. And they have to trust us and they have to respect us and we have to trust and respect them. And that's only going to happen by interaction. You're going to have to live. We're going to have to live with them, eat with them, spend time with them, watch TV, play soccer, do all those things that you do with each other so that you get, you build that relationship, ask about their families, ask about their kids, talk about the things that they like to do. Just like you would make relationships and build and interact and build positive networks with, you know, with, with people in, you know, the U S or your neighborhood, you have to do that with your partner force too. And that was one of the things that we focused a lot on in order to, to be more effective. And were you working with those guys uh, for both your, your special forces deployments? I was. Yeah. And that's one of the, that's one of the great parts actually about going back to the same place a couple of times is when you go back to the same place a couple of times, you, you, those relationships continue. You don't have to start over. It takes months and months to build trust and rapport. And when you operate on a six or eight, six or eight month timeline, by the time you actually have a good idea or have feeling like, you know, what's going on, who everybody is, how it all works together, it's time to leave. So being able to go back allows you to hit the ground running and and become up to speed at a much faster pace and actually make progress. Yeah, that that's um, that's a great point. Um, and then in terms of you know working with those guys, uh, you know were, were were any of them getting wounded? Uh, did you lose any of those guys? What was that like? We did. We did lose. Um, some of our Iraqi counterparts in, you know, in, in unfortunate events um, and, and losing them was, was pretty close. You know, and it's, it's, you're losing, you're losing one of, one of your own team members. You know, I mean, 
sure, they're not American. We don't know necessarily their families. But when you operate with these people every day and you know they're part of your team, you know, losing them is 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 as hard as losing one of your own. And that's what and we did face that. And you know, you gotta you gotta understand that you know, they're, they're grieving. They lost one of their brothers. Um, and, and why, you know, they're out there for the same reason that we're out there. They want, they want to protect their country. They want a better place to raise their children. They want a world free from tyranny and they're willing to, to give their life for that. And we need to respect that just like we're willing to give our life for our country and our children and our way of life. Yeah, and, and then, you know, especially for those guys, um, you know, you guys go out there for six months or in the infantry, you're going out there for longer. And then you come home and then, you know, maybe you rotate back or you go somewhere else or, you know, guys get out, whatever. Um, but those guys, they don't really have breaks, do they? Right. Like they're just they're there the entire time. And um, I remember uh, a a a friend of mine who was a Green Beret and he had worked with uh, some Iraqi special ops units. Um, one of his uh, teammates, uh, Iraqi counterparts, uh, was killed uh, in the fight against ISIS. And uh, he was a sniper. And um, we had done like a little, fu- he, uh, he had gotten in contact with his family and we'd done like a small fundraiser and, uh, and had sent some money over to his wife, I believe. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, we were posting, like, uh, some images of him, you know, on rooftops with a sniper rifle. And, and I remember uh, these, you know, different, I mean, online, you know, people troll and, and, and it's just sort of a, a an opportunity for negativity to kind of spread, right? But I remember all these guys commenting and just, like, bashing, uh, you know, different things. Like, he had his, you know, he had his barrel on the, on the, the top of the roof like we just stupid shit right and and then i all these guys are like talking all this shit and i think some of them were probably you know ex-military guys and um and then my friend was talking about it on a podcast and he's like you know these these iraqi special ops guys like they've been there you know fighting against al-qaeda and and uh you know fighting against some of these shia back groups and then when that stopped now they're fighting against ISIS. So they've been fighting nonstop for 10 plus years, um, you know, while, while we go home and, and rotate in and out. And uh, and basically, like, you guys are, you know, you have the balls to talk shit about these guys uh, when they've been doing nothing but fighting for, you know, 10 plus years. And um, it's just kind of ironic in, in a way, I guess. Well, I think that's a very important point. Uh, is that, and I talked about you know us fighting wars in one year increments, six month, eight month increments. You know these 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 guys were there in until complete every day. You know and and yeah sure they had two days a week off Friday and Saturday, and then they come back and they go to work. And we got to remember that some of them were from these areas, and we're asking them to go prosecute potentially their neighbor, their friend. Someone might they, they might know or their family might know, and and that's a very very hard thing to do. And they do deserve a lot of credit for having the courage to do that. Were there some bad actors? Of course there are, but there's some bad actors in our own military. 
They don't just exist you know, in other people's militaries. I mean, look, we got this guy from the Air Force who you know leaked classified information. You know, these people exist in our own military. Right. You think about first responders. If you think about first responders, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on the mental health and the capability and the mental and emotional capacity of the military. But again, we get on a plane, we go to a far off land, we're there for six months, eight months, a year, and then we come home and many struggle for the, for the events, for things that they've seen. A lot of it around the loss and the death and that they've seen and encountered. But what about the firemen? and the police and the EMS workers who for on for their career 20 years 30 years 40 years every single day they're going to work and they're seeing death and destruction and car wrecks and shootings and rapes and murders and kids drowning and they're seeing that day in and day out for the duration of decades long's career. And that's in their neighborhood. And when they drive to work and they drive by the house that burned down and killed the mother and her two kids, what do they feel when they look at that? Yet we expect them to wake up the next day and go do it again. So it's a very important point, something that we need to keep them, keep into perspective. Yeah, I mean that's a, a super difficult job, um, and and it, you know, it doesn't have to be a a war zone uh, type scenario, right? Like people die in car accidents. Uh, you know, a, a baby eats something off the floor and chokes to death, right? There's so many things that happen that uh, people lose their life or they get badly injured and. Uh, you know, these first responders, you know, they, they res they're the first to respond to a, a scene of, of some kind of tragedy or, or accident. And uh, and that's very traumatic. Like, it's, it's not easy to, um, uh, you know, it's not easy to, uh, you know, to see <coughs> dead bodies or to, uh, you know, to see the bodies of dead children, right? Like, that, kind of, that thing stays with you, you know, for life. So, um yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult job. Um, so, you know, as the the leader, uh, you know, the, the team leader, um, you know, is, is there like a process uh, for, you know, when a guy gets killed, like, you know, what, what you guys do or sort of, uh, you know, go through in, in, in dealing with that? There's 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 no process. I mean, yes, there's a process like, sure, you know, there's an administrative and logistics process that that happens when somebody loses their life. But that there's no the process by which you grieve and you you channel and process loss is different for everybody. Um, what I would encourage and what I found is that when when you do experience that, that you surround yourself with others who are going through the same. So people who try to handle things on their own, it often leads to their own bouts with, with, with their own mental struggles. So I would encourage you know those those who suffer loss and those who 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 see uh, these types of events that they talk to somebody and they surround themselves and they talk about it with those who those who can empathize with what they go through. Okay. 
Okay, so then uh, uh, you you finish your first special forces deployment. Um, you get back, and then how long is it until you go back again? Six months. So six months between the first and the second deployments to Iraq, and uh, I mean, well, my second and third, first and second on the special forces team, but my second and third, yeah. So I had about six months. I went back, um, you know, back to the same place and able to come up, come up to speed, you know, like, like I said, pretty quickly and um, continue that mission there. Um, and then, okay, so then you finish your second deployment, uh, and then like, what's next after that? After the second deployment to Iraq on a special forces team, then we shifted our focus to Africa. And that was one of the more exciting things that I was able to do during my during my tenure, during my career, because it was Africa was a really exciting place. Um, you know, every country is different. Um, every region of the continent is different. Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to serve in both East Africa and West Africa. And I had a really cool job in both of those places where I focused on the development of what we call partner nation capacity. So I went to different countries within Africa and I identified portions of their military that could potentially be trained as special operations, um, giving them you know a little bit of training, a little bit of funding, a little bit of equipment, and then send them to combat al-shabaab in the east boko haram al-qaeda you know whatever it was uh in their region you know we were building and assessing and building their capabilities to be able to go do that okay so you know uh working the africa mission uh the threat that these different african nations face are primarily from terrorist groups you know like a boko haram or uh, you know, Al Qaeda, ISIS type groups, right? So Africa is a very dynamic place. There's a lot of there's a lot there's different regional threats depending on where you were. You know, throughout the, the throughout the you know 2010s, right? We had we had a multitude of different groups that were operating there. In East Africa, you had Al Shabaab, so primarily centered around Somalia. You know, emanating into Kenya. Um, and and south, uh, you know, you had a big regional focus of East African nations who were focused on coming together to combat Al Shabaab and potential spread out of Somalia. So in West Africa, you is that better? Yeah, you're good. Yeah. So in West Africa, you had Boko Haram, and you had um, you know primarily the, those coming together. Uh, in um, in Chad and in Uganda, and I'm sorry, in in Chad and in Cameroon and in Niger, centered around Nigeria. You know that was a big that was a big effort there and a big regional effort to combat that organization and the spread of that organization. And you also had you know routes north and south uh, that were being used by Al Qaeda and other various you know, human trafficking. Um, organizations. And then in Central Africa, we have the Lord's Resistance Army led by Joseph Kony. Um, so the Lord's Resistance Army was you know, another uh, organization that was creating you know, mass chaos uh, throughout Central Africa. And then in Northern Africa was, uh, was ISIS um, and Al-Qaeda. And, uh, and you, know, you had the, the challenges that Libya brought. Um, and so it was a very 
there was a collective approach that needed to be taken to the entire continent, but it was a very regional approach because different threats existed in different regions of the continent. And how long, uh, or, you know, how many times did you go, uh, to Africa? I spent six months living in Djibouti in East Africa. And then I spent, uh, a year living in Germany, traveling to Africa, uh, regularly as the aide to the two-star general who commanded all special operations in Africa. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and, and what was that like, like sort of working at that level and, and seeing in many ways, the larger picture, I guess. Well, serving at that level really exposed me to a tremendous amount of experience and understanding about how, how things get done. You know, I mean, as a young, as a young military officer, uh, you know, you often think that, well, things get done with, you know, with, with a gun, right. Especially with when you're primarily your experience comes from conflict. Okay. Uh, and being in war zones. But what you learn in Africa is that a lot gets done through, that comes back to the relationship piece. And a lot gets done with a smile and a handshake and building coalitions and working together and understanding people's challenges and understanding their needs. And Africa provide that opportunity for me to learn from you know, senior leaders at the most strategic level uh, about how you build these coalitions, how you bring people together, how you think about long-term strategy, how you bring resources in, you know, for not only for, for now, but for the next five years or 10 years. And how do you shape our strategic partnership with a country where we might have forces there for the next 10 years training their people? Uh, and, you know, when you get to live and work and spend time in these different countries, and learn about their culture and learn about their way of life. You you become you you really start to appreciate what we have in the in America, and appreciate the freedoms that we have, and the extreme wealth that we have in this country that doesn't exist in a lot of places in Africa. And so, a lot of perspective is brought from my time that I spent there. Okay, so. Um... So you sort of finished that up, and then at that point, did you decide that's when you were going to get out the army? Yeah, after that, I hadn't been home very much, uh, and so you know, my um, so I had to kind of make the decision of you know would I stay in and continue to pursue that, or would I get out and, and ultimately chose to get out and come to uh, New York, and so I came to New York and you know struggled to find a kind of job that I wanted to do, you know, I mean, the longer you spend in the army, the more institutionalized you become in terms of like, you know, you, you, you don't know anything else about being outside of the army. And, um, one of the things that I thought about was back when, about how the army, um, treats you when you're promoted or when you go to a new job or you get, and they send you to school. Um, to teach you the hard skills. And I knew I had a lot of leadership skills. I knew I had a lot of soft skills. But what I didn't have was a business understanding. I didn't know what a balance sheet was, or I didn't know what a profit and loss statement was. And I didn't know about marketing or um, or how to build a business plan or you know how to how markets worked. And so I said, well, I should, after I was pretty unsuccessful in a lot of my interviews, 
um, I figured I would go and apply to go to business school and try to gain that foundational understanding that had been taught to me in army schools and try to gain that as I took the next step in my career. And so I applied to NYU. I got in and I went to their, um, to their, uh, MBA program. Oh, very nice. Um, oh, that's awesome. Uh, and then, um, but what, you know, what made you decide to come to New York? Uh, my wife wanted to come to New York, so I wasn't really given a choice. <laughs> so pretty simple. She said she moved all around the, you know, she's, she lived in Colorado for 12 years for me. So she was moving to New York. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, were you guys already having children at this time or, uh, when I got out, we had a four, uh, my daughter was four. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so, and then, uh, we've subsequently had two more. So we have a, three-year-old and a six-month-old okay oh nice uh you know very young um okay so then you, you go to you know you get your mba uh from nyu and then what's next for you do you already have an idea of sort of what you want to do or or are you still figuring it out no, I think that, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, I went to school, I studied, uh, I went, worked at Merrill Lynch as a financial advisor um, during my time at school. That was a great opportunity to learn about the markets, learn about finance, you know, really start to meet people in and around the city. Um, but ultimately, it wasn't for me. I didn't enjoy enjoy the work as much as I wanted to um, every single day. Uh, and so I had an opportunity through a mutual connection to go to um, Snapchat and I became the chief security officer or the director of global security at Snapchat uh, for about a year and a half, which was a great opportunity to um, really start honing in on my, my corporate leadership uh, role and what was that going to look like. And also in a world that I knew and I understood and I understood security from my time in the military. And I was able to build a very effective program there uh, with my team <coughs> that was uh, ultimately recognized by the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI for you know, innovation and, and creativity and leadership in the corporate security world. And then, um, then I had a chance from there to go to to go run a cannabis company for a Russian oligarch, um, also in in LA, and that was a an awesome opportunity to not necessary to, to really think about the operations of a business. Also, when we think about the cannabis industry is very dynamic time, you know, rapid growth um, as, you know, things were pushed for more and more toward with legalization in more and more States uh, and, and a lot of money being thrown at the problem um, and, uh, and to be able to kind of start thinking, you know, less about the security aspect and more about the business aspect was, was pretty cool. Uh, and so I had a great chance to, to be there for a time. And then unfortunately during the, during COVID, the, you know, the company was, was shut down and for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and so that allowed me to, to think about what was next. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and then, uh, then did you transition into, you know, what you're doing now, uh, you know, after that, uh, situation? So during, during the COVID time, uh, we left New York, um, we were living in the city and, uh, we had had our son the day before or the day after, 
all of New York City shut down. So it was an interesting time to be there, you know, kind of cooped up in our apartment. And we decided to leave and we went to went to my mom's house and spent, spent the next year there. Uh, and during that time, after my company had closed, the cannabis company had closed, I had to kind of define who I wanted to be and what I wanted to be when I grow up and what was that going to look like. And one of the, and so I thought, you know, first and foremost about how do I get back into journalism? How do I create a platform? How do I do something that's going to allow me to um, tell impactful stories and, and get back to what I always wanted to do? And that's where I came up with the concept of the Jedberg podcast. And that's when I launched that in March of 2021. And then uh, concurrently, I started my own company. I started FR6 and I knew that I wanted to do two things. Number one, I knew I wanted to do security work because I knew that you know, my team and those I knew were, were pretty good and, and loved that work and thought it would create a lot of impact. But I also wanted to, wanted to talk about leadership and I wanted to build seminars and I wanted to build programs and I wanted to put together a framework by which I could take the lessons that I learned in the special operations community and apply them to any to any company. And a lot of people are out there doing this. There's a lot of people doing that. There's a lot of noise in leadership development. But for me, it's about action. And it's not necessarily about giving motivational speeches, you know, although we we do that, but it's more about getting up and creating an experience by which people are going to grow, people are going to learn. And that's through a hands-on approach. And that's through the development of also some very concrete tools and some very con very deliberate framework that are simple, effective, and easily implemented. And so what we did was what I did was build this program called the Five Components of a Performance Mindset. And when we talk about you know how do you build effective individuals, teams, and organizations, it comes down in my mind to five things: character, preparation, choice, action, and communication. And so what I focus on is training those five things and, and the different parts of each one of those at the individual team and organizational level, because that's what sets the foundation for success. How well do we prepare? Do we understand that we have to have a, we have choice in our, in our purpose? Why do we wake up every day and are we doing it for the right reasons? We've got to take action. Everything revolves around action. Do we communicate effectively? Do we understand how our message is sent and how it's received? And do we display the character that's required to do all of those things? And do we surround ourselves with the character that we're looking for? And how do we define what character is? And are we prepared? So those are the those are the different components that we talk about in the leadership program. And that's a big part of what we're doing at FR6. And if uh, if anyone's interested in and in maybe you know reaching out, uh, interested in uh, you know a leadership program, um, you know what what can they do that and 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 how can they do that? Well, it's going to go to frsix.com, frsix.com. We have a tab, and then we're rebuilding the website right now. But you can get there. There's a tab for our security stuff, and then there's a there's also a tab for our leadership programs where you can download uh, a whole one pager that kind of lays out the program, how we're putting it together, the different topics that we're covering, how we're doing our team building events in there, which are very very special forces selection-esque in that we're getting people out into the field. We're doing a lot of our programs in in gyms. We're adding a physical component to it because we got to get out and move. We got we to gotta suck a little bit together. 
Um, and that's how we grow. That's how we learn about each other. That's how we, we actually understand when people thrive, when they perform, when they don't perform is when they're under some little bit of, of mental and emotional and physical stress. And so we're going to create that in a safe environment that allows people to grow. So you can find more about that uh, there. And then um, for everything for the podcast, jedbergpodcast.com or at jedbergpodcast on all social media that gets you into in our environment about what we're doing, telling impactful leadership stories across all industries. Awesome. Um, so Francis, I want to uh, thank you for coming on here. Um, I really appreciate you taking out the time to do this. Uh, you know, it was great talking to you. I encourage my audience to check out your podcast. Um, and if anyone's you know interested in, connecting on a professional level check out his website and and everything that they're offering over there um so again you know thank you for coming on awesome thanks for having me john really appreciate it oh and before we go um what about social media is it like jedberg podcast on on everywhere or at jedberg podcast on everything and then i'm uh fran Richopi on linkedin or at Richopi fran on instagram Okay, awesome.